Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Madeline, can I ask you a question? What do you like about kids? What do you like about kids? Uh, we got to play. That's all I know. They get so much love. They're like nice and playful. We can play with each other and we can like, we talk with each other. What do you like about other kids? Um, the fact that I can relate to them, probably. There's friends to play with. Um, uh, I like friends. Nice. Do you like being a kid? Yes. I like about how they make friends with me. That they're very nice and kind to Jesus and praising them with me and other people. What do you like about other kids your age? No. Sometimes I make friends with them because they're my own age. They're nice people and I can relate to them. If I feel alone, they're there. Like that I can talk to them about things that I wouldn't talk to anyone else about, I guess. I like to play games with my friends. I can talk to them. It's easier to understand people that are the same age because they're going through the same things in life as you. They're very creative. Their energy, their kindness. If I get to talk with them, sometimes they don't understand me if I like need help. I like that they have a lot of energy just like me, so we can have conversations and run around and play together. Best friends? That's a perfect answer. Best friends? Yes, that's the, the right answer again. What do you like about kids? Their kindness and their friendliness, and that's it. Kids are the best. The favor of the world rests on the goat. Now, just in case you're uninitiated to that term, unfamiliar with that term, the goat is the G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time. As far as I can tell, it's a term that grew out of the sports world, but it's a term that gets a lot of press, a lot of discussion, a lot of argument these days certainly from the sports world, from other worlds as well. Who is the GOAT? So if it comes to basketball asking who the GOAT is, immediately there's arguments. Well, it's Michael Jordan, no, it's LeBron James, no, it's Kobe Bryant, and let the games begin. The arguments will never cease. Now, if it comes to the world of football, there's not much arguing. One man who came over with Noah and has been playing ever since been to 10 Super Bowls, won seven of them. It kind of settles the discussion. So in the football world, Tom Brady is the GOAT. What about the world of tennis? 
People start throwing out names. Serena's name gets thrown out, or Djokovic, or Nadal, or Federer, or other names get thrown out, and people argue about who is the greatest of all time. Now, in hockey, not my sport, but even I know of the great one. It's what they called him. I think that qualifies as the GOAT, Wayne Gretzky. But then I got interested in other fields and started nosing around on the Internet just asking about the greatest here, there, and everywhere. Greatest scientist, it seems like the name that most commonly rises to the top of the list is the name Albert Einstein. bit hard to argue with that. What about the world of literature? Who is the greatest writer, author of all time? Well, again, there are going to be some arguments about who that is. Is it Shakespeare? Is it one of the other writers like Dickens, Dostoevsky? Who is the greatest writer of all time? And what about musicians? I discovered that the common name mentioned when you write about greatest cellist of all times is the Spanish name Pablo Casals. But then when you type in greatest violinist of all time, well, there are some different names. Paganini's name is there. Vivaldi's name is there. Perlman's name is there. So you'll have to fight it out. What about the greatest pianist of all time? That one was easy. It's Chemo Smith. <laughs> no arguing? Yeah, please. <laughs> no debate, no contention known by one name, chemo. I did hear, did read that there's someone else that may be a bit behind him, some guy named, I don't know, Sergei Rachmaninoff or something like that. So the goat, who is the great, what about the greatest U.S. president? I mean, that one seems very obvious. It's neck and neck between Biden and Trump. No, 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 that, that was a joke. <laughs> don't rush up here and throw tomatoes. Let's not start a riot in church. Actually, if you type that in, you'll find that the name most commonly at the top of the list is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, greatest of all time. Now, we wonder about these kinds of things, the greatest of all time, for some specific reasons, like we want to know on whom we place our favor. Who gets the, the, the laud, the acclaim, the celebration. When we know who the goat is, then we build statues and we make movies and we write stories and we dedicate days all to the goat. Now, did you know that some people might even be of the opinion that the goat in certain fields might even receive the blessing and the favor of God? Wow. But that does bring up another question for me. And that's the question, who is the greatest disciple of all time? Who is the goat in discipleship? Now, it may interest you to know, as you remember, that's actually a story that's told several times in this book, several times in the four Gospels. That debate was had and then had again and again. Now, we're not given many details about what happened in the debate, but knowing a bit about some of the disciples, we can imagine. The question is introduced, who's the goat? And Peter stands, never timid, and says, well, why are we even having this discussion? It's obvious. It's me. And then James and John, Jesus didn't call them sons of thunder for nothing. They weren't beneath having their mother injected into the discussion, trying to get her to get them the position of goats on either side of Jesus. And so before very long, there are 12 clamoring voices. I'm the greatest. It is on one of those occasions... In Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, 
that Jesus does something dramatic. He takes a child, sets the child in the midst of them, and says to them, you know that kingdom of which you all are supposed to be ambassadors, disciples? You know that kingdom? None of you is even getting into the kingdom unless you become like this child. Humble. Unassuming. Dependent. And with that one live illustration, Jesus turns the kingdom upside down. This is so different than the world in which they live. And it is not the only time that concept appears or that children appear in the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. A number of chapters later, in Luke 18, there are a trilogy, there is a trilogy of scenes that all shed a different spotlight on certain aspects of this same lesson. So the first scene in the trilogy is Jesus telling the parable of the Pharisee going up to the temple to pray, praying, as some versions render it, with himself, looking up to God and essentially saying, God, you are lucky to have me. I am the most religious person you can imagine. And then over there on the side in the corner is a a public and a tax collector. Won't even raise his eyes to heaven, but just keeps saying, God, be merciful to me. Please be merciful to me. And Jesus then gives the punchline. That man went home justified before God. This one did not. It's like, wow. Well, then who exactly gets God's favor? After all, the angel chorus continues to echo from Luke 2 forward. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So you're saying his favor rested on him? The second scene of the trilogy is one to which we'll return momentarily, the one involving children. The third scene of the trilogy is an interaction with a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and wants to become a part of his retinue. When Jesus asks him to do something about the fact that his wealth, his riches, have become a barrier between his soul and God, the rich young ruler walks away sad, and Jesus, deeply saddened, said, it is so hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God because they place their trust in their wealth. And the disciples, you can almost see and see them thinking, now that's blowing our minds. Because we always thought up at the top of the ladder were the wealthy. They were the goats. Surely they deserve God's favor. If they don't get his favor, then who does? And then the middle scene. Luke 18, we'll start reading in verse 15. Here's what Luke records. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, will never enter it. 
the children were of different ages. We know that because Luke uses two different Greek words to describe them. One is a Greek word that means babies, infants, probably babies in arms. The other is a group that means children, could be of different ages. So the people, Luke says, no doubt the parents, the mothers, are bringing their babies to Jesus. The question is why? What exactly did they expect? Well, listen to the words of New Testament scholar Alan Culpepper who writes, We are not told why the children were being brought to Jesus. It has been estimated, however, that infant mortality rates ran as high as 30%. The terrors of disease, famine, and war claimed 30% of those who survived by the age of 6 and 60% by the age of 16. Presumably, people were bringing children to Jesus because they had seen or heard that his touch had healed others. The miracle-working teacher who exercised power over demons, they thought, might bless the children by his touch. They lived in a harsh world. If your baby made it to six, thank God. If your baby made it to 16, it's a miracle. You lived in a world where a cough a sniffle could lead to a grave. And so when the stories start to go around that there's this itinerant, miracle-working teacher that by laying his hands on folk, by speaking a word, people's lives are changed. People's bodies are healed. If I'm a parent there, you're going to have to run really fast to beat me to the head of that line. Please, bless my child. Pray for my child. Matthew, when he tells us the story, says they brought their children not only for Jesus to bless them, but to pray for them. And so they're there yearning for that to happen. They love their children, just like we do. In fact, in Scripture, children are called a heritage from the Lord, a blessing from God. In fact, they were so important that if you happened to be childless, it was viewed as a shadow from the divine cast across your pathway. Children were deeply loved. However, in another way, it was quite different from our world. One sentence from New Testament scholar Clinton Arnold clarifies that. Arnold writes, Children had essentially no social status in the ancient world. So the disciples consider this an intrusion on Jesus' valuable time. Beloved, no social status. If you'd gone to a restaurant in Jesus' world, you might have seen a sign in the window that said, No pets, no children. You love them both, they're not welcome here. No social status. And so here come these families, these parents, bringing their children to Jesus. And who steps in? The disciples. Now, if I understand it correctly, disciples are intended to bring people to Jesus. We, through a long, thoughtful, conversational, prayerful process, decided years ago that our purpose for existence here at Loma Linda University Church was to grow disciples. Disciples bring people to Jesus, right? And yet here it says they rebuked them. Pretty strong word. In fact, the New Revised Standard Version renders it this way. They sternly scolded them. This is the disciples. 
people trying to get to Jesus. They sternly scolded them. You have no right here. Can't you see he's busy? He's with the adults. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's healing. You have no business being here. This is not for children. In fact, if they had prophetic eye at all, they could have said, look, he's teaching parables that for the next 2,000 years will be plumbed to their very depths and still not exhaust the meaning. He's about important business. No children allowed. They sternly scolded them. Till Jesus catches wind of it. Mark, when he tells the story, tells us that Jesus was indignant. I like that. He was indignant. You don't see him indignant all that often. He was indignant. And he said, wait, wait, wait. What are you doing? What, what do you think you're doing? No, 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 no. Let the children come to me. The text says he called them. Let the children come to me because unless you are like one of these, you will never even enter the kingdom of God. Humble. Unassuming. Dependent. And Jesus turns their world upside down, reframes their understanding of the children. In fact, borrowing some words from Robert Farrar Capon in another context, it strikes me that maybe the very best way to speak of the message that Jesus is trying to communicate would be to say, as we hear the angel chorus echoing in the, beckoning in the background, echoing in the background, is that God's grace rests upon the little, the least, the last, the lost, the lonely. That's where God's grace, where his favor rests. So last week we were at a dinner party. A dinner party where Simon the Pharisee is the one who is the goat. And a woman of very questionable reputation is the outcast. Before we walked away from that dinner party, we discovered that there are times when sinners look like sinners and when sinners look like saints. But at the end of the day, we're all sinners. And all can receive the favor of God. Well, last Sabbath afternoon after that, I received an email. Email I want to share with you with the person's permission. Email of a woman who is a member of our congregation, attends Anthem, and is a student here at our university. She wrote, Randy, today's message meant something very unique to me. This week, at the urging of my lawyer, I had to write a detailed account of the whole history of the ways my ex-husband controlled and abused me. It was a deeply painful week and brought to the forefront of my thoughts a pain that I thought I had moved past. As I cried on the shoulder of a friend, I told her I just felt damaged when I recounted all the pain I had to endure. If I had been sitting at the table with Jesus, my feelings would have been, is God big enough to heal my broken heart? You quoted the scripture that those that are forgiven much, love much. But what the message spoke to my heart was, those that have been hurt while innocent 
If they reach out to Jesus, they can have their heart truly healed, and that healed heart will have a greater capacity to receive love than the heart that was never broken. Friends, that's profound. Listen again. What the message spoke to my heart was that those who have been hurt while innocent, if they reach out to Jesus, can have their heart truly healed, and that healed heart will have a greater capacity to receive love than the heart that was never broken. This week, after I finished recounting some of the past in tears, I finished and opened my email to see a large scholarship for the coming quarter. In the past four years, God has put his arms around me a thousand times as I cried to him and exposed my broken heart. I know each of those tears is being replaced by deep love and compassion. Though I launched into my healing in fear, today I stand in hope and trust, knowing God is bigger. Love always wins. We just have to choose it despite the pain. With gratitude, Lorena. Did you catch her words? Those hurt while innocent. That not only describes her as an abused woman, that can sadly, tragically describe the group on whose Jesus' focus turns today, the children hurt while innocent, trying to come to Jesus being turned away by disciples, but then having Jesus respond and say, let them come. With a voice of indignation, these belong to me. These are the ones who will make up my kingdom because God's favor is bestowed on the little, the least, the last, the lost, and the lonely. These. So how do we live that out? How do we respond to that? We leave this place, this worship service, with its beautiful music. Come back this afternoon, enjoy an exceptional Christmas concert. And then go back to our lives. How do we live it out? I suggest to you three words. One is actually a couplet, but three words. The first word is rest. We live it out when we rest. Some of us are pretty low on the ladder and we're fighting to climb it, fighting to survive, fighting to make our mark in the world, fighting to get up into the rarefied air of the goats, fighting to get up there where we too can receive the favor and the blessing of God. Fight, fight, fight. And to all of those who do that, the angel song says, rest. Because God's favor is for you. No no matter if you're little or least or lost or lonely, it's for you. So rest. The late Lloyd John Ogilvie, senior pastor for some years down at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, a colleague of Chemo's, and also chaplain of the U.S. Senate, tells the story of growing up in a home that was, well, it was a good home, but it was fairly stern and stiff. His dad was a strong person. If you, if you got it, it was because you earned it. 
didn't pass out accolades very freely, didn't say, I love you very often. And so Ogilvy says, I, I grew up and I internalized that, and I came to believe that not only about family life, but about God. I never had the sense that God smiled at me, that I had received his favor. I grew up and went to study at University of Edinburgh, studied theology, was there studying the deep themes of the theological world, writing scholarly papers on things like grace, but still battling in my soul as to whether or not I had God's favor. Well, it must have been clear on the outside because one day as he was walking down the hallway of New Chapel, he says he ran into Dr. James Stewart, that diminutive but dynamic theologian and scholar. He said, Dr. Stewart walked up to me and reached up and grabbed the lapels of my coat and pulled me down to his eye level to where we were looking at each other eyeball to eyeball. He looked at me and he said, boy... God loves you now. God loves you now. And somehow that became a moment of change that continued to echo even years later. An understanding that though he felt little or least or last or lost or lonely, God's favor was for him. So this week, stop fighting, striving, elbowing others for the place of the goat. Just rest. God's favor is for you. Second word, reframe. Not only rest, but reframe. Can you imagine a moment that could have been more of a reframe for not only the disciples, but for the parents, maybe even for some of the children, for the culture around him, than when Jesus took somebody of basically low or no social status and said, this is what my kingdom is made up of. In fact, if you don't become like this, you won't even get in. It's an echo of what he does in Luke 9, some chapters back, when he puts that child in the middle of him. In that place, he equates the children. He raises them to a level with himself. When he says, anyone who receives a child in my name receives me. You receive them, you receive me. We're together in this. Must have dramatically reframed their view of what this kingdom was all about. I had my perspective reframed. It was not a proud moment. One, in fact, I'm very ashamed of. But I remember it so well. I remember the feelings I had about it much more than the scene or all that went on around me. I don't really remember that. It's been decades ago. I was, I think, late teens, maybe 20 years old. I really looked up to my brother John, four years older than I, kind of idolized him. He was a consummate athlete. I was always trying to somehow reach him and never quite did. 
We did a lot of physical stuff together, a lot of playing football, playing basketball, working out at the gym, a lot of physical exercise. One day we were exercising. I don't quite remember where or what, but what I do remember is this. A woman intersected with us briefly who was also exercising. A woman who was clearly out of shape. And to my shame, I made a disparaging remark. And my brother said to me, Ran, at least she's trying. I just remember immediately feeling so ashamed. But do you know that that altered my view in a way that continues to this day? For years, whenever I see someone, man, woman, old, young, out of shape, exercising, what I say is, you go, girl. We're with you, man. Don't give up. All because my brother reframed my view. That's what Jesus does here. He takes people of no social status. And he says, they're the models for citizenry in my kingdom. I don't think any person there that day could ever look at a child the same way again. Can you imagine being one of those children growing up and saying, you know, when I was six, I sat on the lap of Jesus of Nazareth. He put his hand on my head. He prayed for me. And then he looked at all those people with glowering faces and said, Here's a model of the kingdom. Said that about me. Can you imagine? Reframed. So the way our culture is currently framed is we look at people and we ask questions about them. What does she do? How much does he make? How big is their house? What kind of car do they drive? Where's their job? We ask all of those kinds of questions to decide, are they goats or are they somewhere down there on a lower rung? This week, Allow Jesus to reframe that and to tell you, echoing from the angel songs over the hills of Bethlehem, the favor of God rests on those who are little and least and last and lost and lonely. Reframe your world by the power of the Spirit of God. Rest. Reframe and finally reach out. Reach out. You know, that's what this story, in fact, that's what the gospel of, in fact, that's what all four gospels, in fact, that's what this whole book is about. The fact that God reached out, that he drew us to himself, that he dignified us at great cost. To himself. 
And now he says to you and to me, freely you have received, freely give. So reach out. We were living in Guadalajara, Mexico. I was mid-teen years. We were on a pastor salary, a missionary pastor salary. Mom was an at-home mom. Times were hard, but Dad had a dream. His dream had long been to work as a mission pilot, to reach out to indigenous peoples that others had forgotten. And that finally came to fruition in Guadalajara with the Huicholas, a tribe of Indians on a reservation, natives on a reservation that time had forgotten. You couldn't get there except by about a week by land and, and, and mountainous terrain or flying in. In fact, Christmas can't come and go without me remembering that we almost lost Dad on Christmas Eve in an airplane crash on a mountain new airstrip, 8,000 feet elevation. It's only by a miracle of God. But that's a story for another time. What I want to tell you today is that one of those flights coming back from what Dad used to call Huicholandia, he brought... He brought a little girl. You've heard ugly terms like bag of bones, skin and bones. It described her. Two and a half, three years old, belly distended, listless, hardly able to move. Dad said... I want to adopt her. Brought her home. I can remember mom holding her. Her name was Simona. Holding Simona and feeding her. Feeding her. And as life slowly returned, Simona would, with those bony fingers, would reach out and pick up every crumb from the table so that nothing was left or lost. It's how she had survived. The weeks and the months, a couple years passed, and Simona was now full of life, full of joy, center of our family. She was now, well, she could go. Dad flew out to the Huicholas and he found her father and he said, I want to adopt her. Her father said, no, no, she's my daughter. No matter what Dad said, he said, no. So the day came when Dad got into the plane with Simona and flew out of our life. Sometimes reaching out will break your heart. It broke his heart. But somewhere in Wichelandia today, I trust, there's a woman named Simona who lived because someone reached out. And so that's the third word, not just rest, 
not just refrain, but reach out. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what the story, the story that echoes from Bethlehem is a story of a God who reaches out and who says, my favor rests on those who are little and least and last and lost and lonely. Because as it turns out, the kingdom of God is not all that interested in the goats. The kingdom of God is very focused on the little lost lambs. And for that, we can each be grateful. Gracious God, thank you for the story of Christmas. Thank you for the echoing melody of the angel chorus that assures us, sinner or saint, adult or child, we can be the recipients of your favor. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.